0: Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. So like C.T. said, we are in a series called Crash the Chatterbox, and we are in week three. And this whole series is about the voice inside of our head that creates insecurity and fear and shame and discouragement and so much more. And this series is based on a very simple truth that's easy to recognize. We've said it every single week. The voice you believe will determine the future that you experience. And so, for the last two weeks, we've talked about how we have a choice. We have a choice between two different voices. We can listen to the adversary or we can listen to the advocate. The adversary or the chatterbox is the voice of Satan in our lives. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. Everything that is false and untrue comes from him. But Jesus promises that those who put their faith in him and are baptized will receive God's spirit that will live inside of us. God calls that spirit the advocate. So, we have a choice. We can listen to the adversary or the advocate, it's up to us. Today, we're gonna to try to overcome the adversary, the chatterbox, when it comes to shame. And usually I, I, I tend to start, I try to tell a story, but today we're actually gonna jump right in uh, and tell a story about one of Jesus' followers named Peter. So Peter is really close to Jesus. He's actually one of his 12 disciples, one of the people who, lived, who get, got, got rid of everything and began to follow him, but he's also in the inner circle of the inner circle. Peter is one of the three people that are closest to Jesus. A lot of people would say that they were best friends, they were incredibly close. Jesus one time prophesied to Peter, telling him that one day he would be instrumental in starting the church once Jesus was gone. Later, Jesus also prophesied to Peter that he was gonna deny him three times that he would even know Jesus. So when Peter heard this, he was aghast, and he promised Jesus that he would never do that, he would never betray him, but that's actually what we're going to see today. And through Peter, we're going to see that he struggled in the same way that we do. Will he listen to the voice of God, or will he succumb to shame? Will he live out his God-given potential, or will he be held captive by his mistakes? And here's the story, starting Luke 22, verse 54. Then seizing him, it was Jesus, but then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. When some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. Now, let's pause here and give Peter a little bit of credit. So Jesus is arrested after being betrayed by one of his other disciples. In the book of John, and another one of the books of the Bible that's written about Jesus' life, it actually says that the other disciples fled when Jesus was arrested. They ran away. They went to hide. But Peter didn't. Peter stayed close by. He got as close as he could so he could see and hear what was going on with Jesus. And so we should give him at least a little bit of credit that his first response wasn't just to peace out like the other disciples. And the story continues. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Jesus is on trial to be executed. Peter understands that if they find out that he is a follower of Jesus, he will probably suffer from the same fate. He knows that he could go on trial and face execution. So Peter lies. He denies that he even knows Jesus. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you, are, you are also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him for he is a Galilean. And see, the story tells us they've been around this campfire for a while. And as Peter's talking, they begin to recognize his accent. They can tell that he's from Galilee. They put two and two together. They also know Jesus is from Galilee. So again, someone points out that you are one of his followers, aren't you? And so Peter lies again. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter so Peter denies Jesus for a third time, just as Jesus predicted. And Luke writes that as Peter denied Jesus, he happened to be walking by, they made eye contact. I think this is one of the most uncomfortable moments in the Bible. I can't imagine the immediate sorrow that Peter felt, the immediate pain, the immediate remorse. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Jesus is on his way to get crucified. and his last encounter with Peter, one of his most outspoken and vocal proponents is Peter saying, I don't even know who he is. Another one of the books of the Bible that writes about the story actually goes into a little bit more detail. In it, it says, Peter called down curses on himself in an attempt to prove he didn't know Jesus. And this is just a nice way of, of saying, Peter said, God can send me to hell if I even know this man. Just like Jesus prophesied, it happened. To make matters worse, Jesus heard the third denial as he was being escorted to trial. The story finishes in Luke 22, verse 62, and says this, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter realized the gravity of this moment. He immediately realized that he had screwed up. He's ashamed. He messed up, and he knew it. As soon as Peter realizes that he made a mistake, he has a choice. How does he respond? Does he listen to the adversary or the advocate? Will he respond in shame or will he respond in grace? How do you respond when you mess up? What do you do when you've let everybody down? How do you react when somebody hurts you and it's completely outside of your control but you are afraid of it coming to light? How do you process when you make the same mistake over and over and over again? Psychologists say that there are two paths that we can take when we mess up, when we fall short. You can go down the path of shame or you can go down the path of guilt. When we make a mistake, the first thing that happens is there's an action. This is where you mess up, this is where you do something wrong, you fall short. You snap at your wife, you yell at your kids, you get unreasonably angry at your waiter, you tell a lie, you make a big financial mistake, you get abused, you sleep with him, it is your action. So let's just say for illustration, and this is completely hypothetical, let's just say that Ray and I are driving somewhere and she's giving me directions and I missed the turn, so I snap at her. Again, completely hypothetical, this never happens when driving to the doctor. (laughs) This is just for the sake of the message. (laughs) Snapping at my wife is my action. So what should happen next is I should analyze my action. I should look back and say, is this right? Is this healthy? Because what analyzing your action does is helps us recognize, was this out of bounds or not? Did I respond the right way? The way that I analyze it and the way that Christians should analyze it is through a Christian worldview shaped by what the Bible teaches. So I may analyze something through that view and realize that was a good response. That response was healthy. That response was godly. If I'm a teacher and I see a kid bullying another, I raise my voice toward that kid. I may look back at it later and realize that was the appropriate response for what was going on. But if my wife is just trying to get me to the doctor on time and I snap at her, I need to recognize that something is out of whack there. That's not a healthy response which means that there's something deeper going on underneath the surface. And this step is really important because if I refuse to analyze my actions, that means I don't want to grow. That means I don't want to become who God wants me to be. Because growth can only come when we analyze our actions. And this is easy to do and see in other people. It's easy to analyze other people and see how they need to change. Have you ever done this? Of course you have. All of us have. We do it all the time. It probably most often is done in customer service situations. If there's a a cashier at Target or a flight attendant, if somebody is interacting with a waiter, you can see somebody blowing up and you're like, that person needs to chill out, something's wrong with that person. A lot of us will actually begin to try and analyze why someone would talk to someone that way and be like, I bet it's their dad. (laughs) But we wanna know, why are you treating someone that way? Why are you responding that way? When we lived in Tennessee, my wife worked at a local Starbucks And even though we were in Johnson City, Tennessee, Tennessee, it was the busiest Starbucks in the region. It was always packed. The drive-thru was always circled around the building. And one morning while they were cranking out drinks, they messed one up, which is possible, right? Some of you get irrationally upset about that. But they messed up a drink, and the woman in the drive-thru actually realized it before she got back on the road, so she drove around the building and parked and walked in to get a new drink, but she was furious. Yelling at the barista as she made a new drink in a larger size, but she just couldn't let it go. Moments after she stepped outside the coffee shop, you could hear a loud thud, and a frappuccino-y mess went sliding down the glass window, pulling onto the asphalt. She was so upset, even after getting a new drink, even after yelling at this barista, she walked outside, took a few steps, and threw it as hard as she could right at the window, hopped in her car, and drove off. To make the situation even more bizarre, she was actually a regular, and so she was like back in the drive-through the next day. (laughs) But that's an unnatural response, right, like that's unhealthy. If she sat down and truly thought about how she responded, she would hopefully realize that wasn't the best course of action, no matter how upset she was. So when I personally analyze my actions, or when I'm forced to come face-to-face with them, I can go one of two ways. I can go down the path of shame, or I can go down the path of guilt. And these are two very, very different things. And it's vital that we know the difference between the two. Shame is about who I am. Guilt is about what I did. And there's a very big difference, so I'm going to say it again. Shame is about who I am. Guilt is about what I did. Shame says I'm a bad parent. Guilt says I didn't discipline right. Shame says I'm a horrible person. Guilt says I didn't treat that person with respect. Shame says I will never be who God wants me to be. Guilt says I sinned. Shame says, I'm a bad husband, but guilt says, I hurt her feelings. See why that's so dangerous? Shame keeps you stuck. Guilt moves you forward. When you experience shame, you don't want to deal with it. So if you feel shame about the addiction that you have, you're embarrassed about it. But if you realize that you are guilty, you go deal with it. Guilt is the feeling of responsibility or remorse that inspires us to act differently in the future. Shame is about me. Guilt is about others. This is another key difference. The reason why I snap at my wife is that I feel ashamed that she thinks I don't know what I'm doing. That's about me. But guilt is about others. How did I hurt you? I want to make that right. How did I ignore you? I want to serve you. Shame is unhealthy. Guilt is healthy. You see that in how confrontation works. In healthy confrontation, you don't attack the person, you attack what they did. And some of you have had tough bosses who instead of saying you missed the deadline, they would say, are you incompetent? And that's shame. It's like they're trying to shame you into being a better employee. They're talking about who you are and not what you did. That's unhealthy and that's unfair. This is a key understanding of confrontation because if you've only experienced confrontation from parents or a spouse or another leader in your life that's centered on shame, you have only experienced unhealthy confrontation. Because of that, you will develop one of two responses in regard to confrontation. Either you will develop really thick skin that allows you to just not feel anymore or you will decide that you are never going to confront someone because you don't want them feeling the same way that you did. If you've been shamed in the past, it's even difficult for you to handle healthy confrontation today. Healthy confrontation isn't about shame, that's unhealthy. It's about guilt because it's about what you did. It's not about judging you, but it's about fixing a mistake that was made. the story of Jesus, this is the difference between Peter and another disciple named Judas. They both betrayed Jesus. We read Peter's story, but Judas is the one who for 30 pieces of silver leads the opponents to Jesus so they can arrest him. But what's the end of the story? Judas feels shame. He actually gives the money back to the high priest. The high priest won't take it. He calls it blood money. And so Judas, full of shame, goes out and hangs himself. Now listen, Judas hung himself because he felt shame after betraying Jesus. He thought, this is who I am. I can't change. I am a betrayer. I messed up. Well, one thing I want to make incredibly clear is that not every person who commits suicide is doing so because of a mistake. But what's really important to know is that shame directly correlates to suicide. Shame is an epidemic in our culture, and shame is an epidemic in our church, especially when it comes to the topic of mental health. Last week, a pastor named Andrew Stockland of Inland Church committed suicide. He was 30 years old. Inland Church was impacting the community. They had thousands of members. Andrew wasn't upset because of a failing church. He wasn't responding to sin. Andrew struggled with mental health and he had done so for years. Many of you, if you're on Facebook, you might've seen the post. I know for me, I probably saw more of them because I have a ton of friends who are in ministry. But the thing is, this thing happened and we realized that there is a problem in our church when we can't talk about mental illness. The church has largely ignored that for all of its history. And instead of the church being a safe place for people who are battling depression and anxiety and bipolar and much more, it's become a place of shame. It's become a place where people who struggle with mental health feel the need to hide what they are going through. September is Suicide Prevention Month and I believe that should start in the church. The church should be leading the way and caring for people who struggle with mental illness, for the people who fight urges every day to take their own life. Did you know that the number of suicides in the United States has increased 24% from 1999 to 2014? Since 2006, the increase each year jumped between one and 2% according to the Centers for Disease Control. The biggest jump was among adolescent girls and men aged 45 through 64. Pastor Stephen Austin, a few years ago, attempted suicide, tried to take his own life. He made it, but what he says now in one of the articles that came out of the last few weeks is that suicide is an epidemic that's squeezing the life out of our families, churches, and communities. Suicide respects no one, but the stigma surrounding mental illness, especially in the church communities, keeps people locked in a prison of shame, refusing to admit they need help. Yes, Christians can and do struggle with mental illness, and people need to know that they are not alone and you can still be a Christian and struggle with mental illness. Pastor Tony Rose said a depressed person is convinced that no one has felt what they feel. And so if you are here today and you are carrying shame because of a mental illness, you don't have to feel like you are alone. You don't need to feel shame because of that. You don't need to feel shame because you have to take medicine because your anxiety is so bad that being here on Sunday creates panic attacks. You don't need to feel shame because people ignorantly believe that mental health issues come from sin or a mistake that you have made. You don't need to feel shame because you have really high highs and really low lows and you don't know how to control them. You don't need to feel shame because of that. This church collective, we will never make you feel shame because of your struggles. You are not alone. You don't need to feel shame. And the leaders of this church want nothing more than to walk alongside you, pray for you, support you, listen to you, anything that we can to let you know that you are not in a prison of your own. And so Judas messed up. He messed up and he chose shame, but he had a choice. He could have chosen guilt. He could have realized the mistake that he made and turned to Jesus, and he would have received grace. Jesus would have offered him grace even though he was betrayed. And the reason why we know that's true is because we see what happened in Peter's life. Peter messed up. He betrayed Jesus three times after promising it would never happen. He told God, you can send me to hell if I know this man, and he still messed up. Scripture says he wept bitterly but he doesn't give up. He experiences grace from Jesus, and later he's the main person in leading the founding of the church, and 3,000 people are baptized the first time he preaches a sermon. Dr. Brene Brown, who's probably leading the way in the conversation on being emotionally healthy, talks extensively about shame in one of her books. Actually, she talks about it in almost all of her books. If you're looking for a good book to read on mental health or shame or guilt or any of the things that you're struggling with, look up Brene Brown, she's incredible. But according to Brown's research, she says that shame is directly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, suicide, and eating disorders. Brene Brown said that shame has two loop tracks. The first loop track, according to Brene Brown, is that you are never good enough. Shame constantly repeats to you over and over again that you are not good enough. Not a good enough husband, not a good enough friend, not a good enough employee, not a good enough father, not a good enough follower of Jesus. The second loop track is, who do you think you are? This is the track that plays as you try to break free from the weight of shame in your own life. As you work to take a step up in your marriage and be a better husband, shame tells you, who do you think you are? As you try a new parenting tactic, spend more time with your kids, shame will tell you, who do you think you are? As you fight to get out of debt, you put yourself out there, shame asks, who do you think you are? And Satan will put those phrases on repeat so you hear them every day and every night. The adversary will use these loop tracks to drown out the voice of the advocate so you get stuck in a cycle of shame. One of my friends recently decided that he was going to cut cable, and so now his kids watch a ton of DVDs. He said they essentially have a rotation of two or three movies that the kids watch over and over and over again. They watch them so many times they actually know all the words. A few weeks ago, he walked into his living room to see his youngest son watching the movie, and it was frozen. Not the movie Frozen, The screen was actually frozen. It wasn't moving at all. And do you know what his son was doing? He was just sitting there. He was watching. That's that's exactly how some of us deal with shame, because our lives are broken And we've gone through this cycle and it's not working any longer. We feel stuck. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to get out of it. And we are stuck in the story of our life watching it unfold again and again and again. And it's not changing. It's the same story over and over and over. And we're just sitting there because we don't know how to get out. I think the path out is to go down the road of guilt instead of shame. Because we all mess up. We all fall short. This isn't a matter of two paths, perfection and imperfection. We are imperfect, that's a fact. The sooner you embrace that, the better your life will be. But when we mess up, which we will do, we have a choice. Do we go down the path of guilt or do we go down the path of shame? Guilt is the path of healing and forgiveness. Shame is an unending cycle. Ray gives directions, I snap at her. I'm ashamed because I think that I'm a bad person and I'll never be a good husband no matter how hard I try. So the next time she offers me directions, it doesn't even matter what tone she uses because I immediately think I must be an idiot. And so what do I do? I snap again and the cycle continues. But if I choose to go down the path of guilt, I realize that it's not about who I am, it's about what I did. And in that, there's hope for healing, so I won't do that again. There's hope for forgiveness, so I can move forward. So why do we choose the path of shame? Why do we do that? Why do I get defensive when my wife gives me directions? Why do I feel like a failure when Elise doesn't listen to me and disobeys? Why, when I miss my reading, the reading of my Bible, do I stare at my phone and scroll through Twitter for 30 minutes before I go to bed instead? Why, when I preach the best sermon that I'm capable of writing, do I leave this church feeling like a failure? And you have your own issues. You have your own things that you are struggling with. Some of those issues come with the way you were raised. Some of them come from traumatic experience you have had. But most of the time, the reason why we put, choose the path of shame, it comes down to two questions and two things that we have to wrestle with every single day. The first question is this. Do I believe God about who I am? Because God says that I'm made in his image. He says that I'm his workmanship. He says that I'm his child whom he loves. He says that I'm redeemed. He says that I'm worth the price he paid when he sent his son to die for my sins. Second question is, do I believe God about who he is? He is my creator. He's adopted me and now he's my father. He can really make all things right one day. He cares about my burdens. And some of you struggle with that. You wonder, does God really care about that? You have shame about being single. Do you really believe God cares about you and that if he wants you to be married, he will send you somebody and if he doesn't, it's still going to be okay? Do you believe that? You have shame about how your kids turned out. Do you really believe that God offers grace or are your kids' decisions and mistakes the final verdict on your life? You have shame about your addiction. Do you really believe that God uses imperfect people or are you doomed into a cycle of failure and shame for the rest of your life? Do you have shame about your career? Do you really believe that God cares more about the character of your person than the title on your business card? Each week of this series, we've been combating the lies of the chatterbox, the lies of the adversary, the lies of Satan, whose goal, his sole goal is to steal, kill, and destroy you, destroy your hope, destroy your peace, destroy your value, destroy everything. And we're trying to combat that with the truth from God, with the truth from the advocate. And the truth that God wants to speak to you this Sunday is that he has, he has Romans 8.3 says this, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. The law of Moses is referring to the first five books of the Bible. This is all they had written down when it came to God's word and how to live their life. What Paul is saying when he wrote that is that rules can't save us. We mess up. Rules can't save us. They can't be the thing that makes us clean. They can't be the thing that makes us pure. They can't even really be the thing that pushes us in the right direction. They cannot save us. And because of that, we can walk down a path of shame. But here's the good news. So God did what the law could not do. God did what rules couldn't do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. The law can't save us, but Jesus can. That section of Romans actually starts with this. Romans 8 verse 1 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. There is no shame for those who belong to Jesus. That's not who you are. It may be what you did, but that's not who you are. And so many of you walked into this room today with your shoulders slumped. You walked into this room looking down. You walked into this room with your hands over your soul and you're living in the dark because you feel shame because someone told you that is who you are. That infertility, that's who you are. That inability to handle money that resulted in debt, that's who you are. That time you got that girl pregnant, that's who you are. That bad parenting is who you are. That inability to finish your master's degree is who you are. Those thoughts that no one else can see is who you are. That addiction is who you are. But what we want you to understand is that Jesus is in this space today. He's putting his hands on your shoulders. He's lifting up your head, and he is saying, that is not who you are. God, your heavenly Father, loves you. He died for you. And even if you do that thing again, he'll still see you the same way. Because God says that he has. He has saved you. He has forgiven you. He has rescued your life from the pit. He has. So you have a choice. Will you live in the cycle of shame that says you are a failure? Or will you believe God? Will you understand that even if you are guilty of messing up, God can lead you to healing and forgiveness? Will you choose to believe God or not? There are two voices, the adversary or the advocate. Shame leads to condemnation, that's the adversary. Guilt leads to healing, the advocate. My favorite part of Peter's story comes in John 21. After Jesus' death, Peter actually retreats and goes back to being a fisherman. He goes back to the thing that he did before he started following Jesus. And so he had heard rumors of Jesus' resurrection, and people had told him that Jesus was alive. But Peter thought that Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with him because of the betrayals. So Peter retreats. He goes back to fishing. The story tells us that Jesus hunts him down. He goes to the beach where Peter is fishing, and he calls to him. Peter doesn't even sail into shore. He actually jumps into the water and swims the whole way in. And when he gets there, he stands before Jesus, and Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Jesus is saying is, Peter, I'm not done with you yet. Peter, I still have a job for you. Peter, I want to forgive you. Peter, I want to give you another chance. Peter, I want to give you a job where you're going to turn the world upside down. You see, Peter wanted to go down the path of shame, but Jesus says, no, Peter, I have a different plan for you. One of the best things about the story of Peter is that Jesus actually calls Peter a rock before he ever denies Jesus. And there probably isn't anything worse that we can do than denying who Jesus is. But before that ever happened, Jesus fully knew that Peter would betray him and still calls him a rock. Still prophesied that the church would grow and change and impact this world because of Peter before the betrayal. Some of you in this room today, you need restoration. You're living in shame. I don't know if somebody told you or you believed it on your own or if it's just the voice of the chatterbox, but you have believed the lies of the adversary that what you did is who you are. You walk around every day crushed by the weight of shame. You are stuck in that loop track that just keeps playing over and over and over again. What Jesus wants to do is for you to take your hands off your face because he says, you're sleeping with her. That's not who you are. You're messing up your money over and over and over again. That's not who you are. You aren't able to hold down a good job to support your family. That's not who you are. It may be what you did, but it's not who you are. See, Jesus wants to have the last word on your circumstance, not just your sin. He isn't just interested in the ways that we fall short. He's interested in every aspect of our life. And he wants to have the last word on who you are and how you see yourself because he has a better future than you could ever imagine. In a few moments, we're gonna sing a new song. And we're gonna celebrate baptism. And we're gonna celebrate as James and Michelle put their faith in Jesus. And we're gonna sing a song that we're gonna close out today called Jesus I Come. And the song bridge says, thank you Jesus, just as I am, I come. Hallelujah, oh what amazing love. Just as I am, I come. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have have your life together. You don't have to have all the answers to the questions that you have. You just have to stand before him and say, this is who I am. Here I am. Thank you, Jesus. Just as I am, I come. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that, that we don't have to live a life of shame. God, that we recognize and we can really step back and and really think through all the ways that we've fallen short, that we've messed up, that that we've been a bad husband or a bad friend or or just in, in ways that we turn our backs to you. But God, ultimately at the end of the day, your goal is not to shame us, but to give us grace. So God, I pray for everybody that's here today that feels that weight of that, sh- that shame, whether that's from a mistake in their past or God, ultimately, it's because they're afraid to come to church because they have a mental illness or because of whatever reason, the church in the past or people in the past have made them feel like their mistakes or their problems or their struggles is who they are. God, we're so thankful that we don't have to live that way. God, I pray for those of us who are struggling with this idea of shame. God, that ultimately we know that our identity comes from you. It doesn't come from what we do or how we've done it or how bad we've messed up. God, ultimately, it's all you. God, I pray this week we focus more on who you are as well. God, that even in all of our mistakes and even in the ways that we messed up, you sent your son to die on a cross to forgive us of our sins, even though we don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But God, ultimately, that your goal was always to have a relationship with us and bring you to us. God, I pray this week that you help us ignore the chatterbox, get rid of that voice, and really focus on your voice that says that you love us, that we are made in your image, and that you think we are good. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.